The Canucks return to action tonight, and the team's president continues to shed light on the direction of the franchise. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, back in the saddle after a few days off. My co-host, as always, he was holding down the fort without me, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. You can also read Drancer's work, doing a fantastic job covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, a lot going on. Finally, the Canucks have had this little mini hiatus since that win against the Leafs on Saturday. They're back in action in San Jose tonight. We'll talk about that. Quinn Hughes is going to be back in the lineup, but... Probably more pressing or more top of mind for a lot of Canucks fans is that Jim Rutherford, who we know not shy about talking to the media, he has not been so since he's been here in Vancouver, <laughs> again took the opportunity. Probably uh, to... more pressing for Canucks fans, not the games. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's, let's talk about not the games. It's our first game Canucks game night in four days. Let's talk about not the games. And by the way, a completely rational approach. It makes sense. Yeah, you're right. And we're still, what? Five-ish weeks out of the deadline. Four and a half. Here, now? Four and a half. I think we're getting yeah, into four we're, and a half. We're getting territory. close. <laughs> we're getting close. I can start to dust off my a month out from the trade deadline sort of comments. But still, even when, even with though Jim Rutherford has been very, very accessible, you know, doing these types of interviews, doing media availabilities, it's still always fascinating when you do get to hear from the president of hockey operations. And I really think, well, there's two major takeaways. We'll play some clips and we'll really dig into what he had to say. By the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can get your thoughts in. Uh, again, Jim Rutherford was on with Mike Halford and Jason Bruff this morning. If you missed it, after you listen to Canucks Hour, you can go check it out on the Halford and Bruff in the Morning podcast. Did, did you listen to the full thing? I did. I don't think he liked Jason Bruff's takes. <laughs> I think he. I think he was a little skeptical about Bruff's takes. Just gonna, well, just can, gonna leave that there. He, you know can get, he can get in line with a lot, you, some other people. You know, then. it's also Jim Rutherford's birthday, by the way. I did, and okay. apparently they they missed that on the. Uh, did they? Interview, I think did so. They? Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, <laughs> good, good job. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Alfred and Bruff are the best, and happy birthday to the president of hockey. Operations. Two immediate takeaways, kind of big picture takeaways for me. One is that you know the hype of Jim Rutherford and how willing he is to speak to the media, how willingly, how willing he is to articulate his vision in public, how direct he can be. I think we are seeing that play out since he's come in. Like, the, the contrast between what was here before and how Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin are handling themselves could not be more clear. Well, let's let's talk about how funny the dynamic is. The Vancouver Canucks exist like... Justin Morissette will know this. Justin, where was Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Where did she live in again? Sunnyvale? Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale, Sunnyvale, Sunnyvale California. And Sunnyvale was located at like the nexus where the spiritual worlds collide. On top of the oh, Hellmouth. A Hellmouth. The Hellmouth. Yes. Okay, thank Sunnyvale you. High School was built on top of the Hellmouth. Uh, the yes. Hellmouth, which is a you know very unfortunate coincidence for her love life, but uh, fantastic for those of us who've enjoyed the series. And... You know, the Vancouver Canucks basically are built at, like, Rogers Arena is built on the Hellmouth uh, on which all NHL trade rumors exist over the course of the past six weeks. Like, it's truly incredible. And yet, and yet, you know, I do think there's this sort of odd dynamic playing out where a Canucks player gets named in rumors and yet the team itself, widespread denials, super, a super level like unusual level uncommon level a notable level of message discipline from rutherford from patrick alvin from any agm that they've uh rolled out discussing patience discussing the club's lack of urgency 
Um, I think part, partly it's true because there's so many new faces, they're still getting accustomed to one another. But partly, I think it suits the Canucks' bargaining position, right? Partly, it suits the Canucks' bargaining position to be the team with time, the team that you know isn't isn't in a rush. You, you're you're the team looking to load up for the playoffs. We're the we're the team with guys you want under team control, and and I think they've been really disciplined about sticking to that message, even as the volume of credible reporting around this club coming from without the industry, you know, isn't off. It's not, you know, the it's not without merit by any means. This team is clearly very busy gauging their options, and yet, in terms of what they're putting out, in terms of what they're talk, saying to fans, there's a, a remarkable level of message discipline. It is a big departure, a stark departure from what we're used to in Vancouver. And that message discipline, that's not easy in a market like Vancouver in these specific circumstances that you're outlining. And the, the really fascinating thing is, you know, one way you can kind of achieve that message discipline is just by not having a message, by kind of turtling and, okay, we're not we're not going to be available, we're going to go behind the scenes a little bit here. They're not doing that. They're out there answering questions, and they're still able to kind of walk that line and put out a very specific message, not just to fans here in this market or media in this market, but to teams, media around the league who are listening as well. As you said, from, from multiple different people, you know, in multiple different occasions, that's not easy to do, and it's pretty impressive, the consistency they're doing it with. So let's scribble in the margins, right? This is this is Jamie and, and uh, Dodd and Drancer's annotation corner yes right uh, learned men learned men we are going to go to the text and then we are going to fill in the margins in red ink <laughs> and uh, and note what we thought as we prep yeah. you all for the test the exam that is the nhl so i want to start with this one and i know it got a lot of attention on social media in the text message inbox during the initial interview with jim rutherford and look everything that we're talking about you know, when it comes to what the direction of this team is going to be going into the trade deadline going into years to come it all starts with well, what is Jim Rutherford in the front office? What do they think about this team currently, right? That informs every other decision they're going to make. Not surprisingly, that was one of the questions that Halford and Bruff put to Jim Rutherford. Here's what he had to say about his opinion currently of the Vancouver Canucks, his current opinion of the team. Well, we win a number of games because we have a franchise goalie. And uh, our goalie makes up for... Uh, a lot of our shortcomings on, on, on a lot of games. Um, we have, uh, <clears throat> right now, I, I would say that we have an average skating team that, that relies heavily on, on a handful of players to do, create the offense for us. I'd like to see that scoring a little more balance throughout the four lines have four lines that the coach is comfortable rolling <clears throat> I don't mind uh, I don't mind our defense uh, I know you can always pick apart different players uh, there aren't any perfect players in our game you can go from the top guys to the bottom guys and uh, but uh, I think we can make something out of our defense and <clears throat> this is a team that gives all they've got. You know, we've gone through a team, a, a time of adversity here over the last month or so, same as a, a number of other teams, but with COVID and the number of players we've had out and the different things that have gone on, I give our players credit. I mean, I think our players have given everything they've had and I give them credit for hanging in the playoff race. 
That's Jim Rutherford taking kind of a big picture view of the current state of the Canucks roster. A lot to unpack there, Drancer, in well, that answer. Uh, the idea that this team's only winning because of goaltending. I mean, doesn't he know that goaltenders are part of the team? Seems pretty <laughs> negative. Seems pretty <laughs> negative to me. The part about the defense, liking the defense, yeah. or, or at least seeing something in it that can be built upon, is not a ton of surprise to me, as our listeners will know, right? I've talked about this a little bit, right? Since Rutherford arrived in Vancouver, right, and he's been the president of hockey operations for 22 games, right? 22 games. Um, Tyler Myers has played the best hockey of his career, other than his Calder winning season, right? He has been a true 1A defenseman in terms of his contributions over the course of the past 22 games. Tucker Pullman has played exceptionally well defensively. Uh, he's missed the last five, but so for 17 games, Tucker Pullman has played above his level, right? In that circumstance, considering the types of performances that Vancouver's blue line has put in, I think you can understand why someone watching it up close and trying to figure out what they've got would have the impression that Rutherford you know, has, which is, these guys are playing well. We're not giving up anything five on five. We are playing lockdown defense in front of an elite goaltender, I can work with that. Especially considering Rutherford's track record of building teams with deeply imperfect blue lines, right, that punch above their weight behind fast forward groups and, and win Stanley Cups, right? Rutherford is the guy who wins Stanley Cups with Ron Hainsey as his number one. Like, that's that's what he's done, right? He's the guy who wins Stanley Cups with Frantisek Caberlet, not even the good Caberlet, <laughs> as, his, as his number one defenseman. So... I'm not shocked at all to hear him say that, even though I know the mar- the reaction in this market is um, a little bit like that. Like, what? Wait, what? Huh? What? Yeah. What are you talking about? Uh, really? So, I'm not surprised by that. Now, I do think this blue line has a big issue. And it's not about the on-ice performance. It's that they're the second most expensive blue line in hockey, right? It's that tonight, with one of Kyle Burroughs, who's on a two-way deal, or Brad Hunt, who's on a one-way 8000 $800,000 deal, and Quinn Hughes replacing that player, uh, even though Pullman's still out of the lineup, right, you're looking at the Canucks uh, icing a blue line group that's going to be the second most expensive on the ice tonight, but that's the only game in which that could be possibly true. <laughs> that game, because because the other team has Carlson and Vlasic and Brent Burns. And Brent Burns, right. Yeah. So uh, you're looking at a team that pays three defensemen like they're, one, like they're ones, right? Uh, I mean, there's only 36 NHL defenders that make $6 million or more. Um, Myers, OEL, and Quinn Hughes all qualify. And only Quinn Hughes is really going to provide, in a durable long-term fashion, that type of value. So, the problem with the Canucks defense core, if they cost $20 million combined, if they cost $18 million combined, you'd say you can win with that. Flawed, but usable, Right. The problem is they're about $10 million too expensive on aggregate. And how do you, you know, strip that away? How do you make that fit within a team structure that can contend? Like, how do you make that at all efficient? Or at least not so inefficient that it absolutely murders you? Because for me, even though the Canucks' defensive results are have been good, um, the defense has been, like, culprit one in why this team has underperformed so significantly this season. Yeah, and the defense has been good in terms of shutting down the other team. We all know about the struggles they've had producing offense, and that's that's important elsewhere in that clip, right? 
uh, Jim Rutherford mentioned, okay, only, we only have a handful of players who really drive the offense in our team, and it's easy to read that uh, about wanting more depth at forward, but part of having more balanced scoring and not just relying on a small handful of players is being able to have that offense from the back end as well. The clip about the 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 quote about the defense is really fascinating because he says, I don't mind the defense, but then he also says, I think we can make something out of our defense. So it's easy to kind of look at it because the blue line has been such a topic of conversation for so many years here in Vancouver. You can almost get a little ahead of yourself and say, wow, Jim Rutherford is giving a vote of confidence to the blue line. He loves this defense. He said he didn't mind it. Okay. So let's just, let's pump the brakes just a little bit. Right. And he's saying, I think we can make something out of it, which implies that he's still seeing room to tinker and and add around them or at least around the margins. Right. At least around the margins. And I think the other part of it is, and and as you said, we've talked a lot about on, on this show about kind of stylistically how Jim Rutherford at least doesn't mind building his blue lines. But I also wonder how much of the positivity about the defense, it's that, but it's also just a recognition of how hard it would be to meaningfully, dramatically reshape the blue line when you do have so much money tied up long-term in OEL, when you do have Tyler Meyer oh, still in the books for OEL's two years not after going this anywhere. one. Exactly. So, you have to build it around OEL and Quinn now, right? I mean, that's those are the immovable pieces. One, because he's an immovable part of your core, and one, because he's got a full no-movement clause and a liability in terms of cap liability that's still, you know, numbers in, in the high 40s in millions of dollars uh, through 2026 following this year. So that's the thing. You're in a position where even if you did come in and say, man, I want to completely blow up this blue line and reshape it from scratch with the exception of Quinn Hughes, even if you wanted to do that, that's a lot easier said than done. That's not going to, that's, that's no mean feat to accomplish. So I get from Jim Rutherford's perspective saying, you know what? All right, this is the hand I've been dealt. I can work with it. We can make something out of this, even if it's not perfect right now. I've got a small update on the Canucks blue line, by the way, for our listeners. Exclusive to Canucks Hour listeners about the game tonight. Um, An update from San Jose, where the Canucks took line rushes and where Bruce Boudreaux would not say whether or not Brad Hunt or Kyle Burroughs would come out of the lineup um, You know, on Quinn Hughes' return. Hughes, of course, took the morning skate today, and as the Canucks did their rushes, was paired with Luke Shen. So the Canucks rolled OEL and Myers, Shen and Hughes, and that would leave the three rotating in and out with some um, lack of clarity about who it will be. So it'll presumably either be Burroughs Hamonic or Hunt Hamonic. I would I would wager Burroughs Hamonic, but we'll see tonight. And that again, having Luke Shen back with Quinn Hughes, which has been a very effective pairing, it does. It kind of underlines the point that it's not necessarily the performance which should concern Jim Rutherford, or not strictly the performance of the blue line, but the cost, right? Because if right. it was, if you had Luke Shen, you're like, okay, look, maybe we we don't love having Luke Shen in our top four, but he's so cost effective, we can live with that, and then we'll try to find options elsewhere to further down, cheap options farther down the lineup. That would be one thing, but the fact that you're also then have money committed on the books next year to Travis Hamonic have money committed long-term as well to to Tucker Pullman, it makes it much harder for that to be the status quo. The, the fact that you've got $5.5 million committed to two players who aren't as good with Quinn Hughes as Luke Shen, who makes eight hundred fifty k is a massive issue. A massive issue. And, and one that we sort of all understood was an issue the day those contracts were signed. Um, you know, just, just another unforced error and, and part of what makes Rutherford's task so difficult. This team is both not good enough and very hard to disassemble. And that's the challenge of this deadline, the, the primary challenge of this deadline. I want to, I wanna, do you mind if I jump and, um, and ask Justin to play 
the clip about the fans' reaction yeah. to a rebuild. Because while I think people heard this as Rutherford discussing fans, Jamie, you can attest to this. The moment I, I listened live and I immediately sent the clip to him and I said, this is the clip for yeah. me. Because this, to me, is the clearest illumination we've had yet about Rutherford's intentions, in my opinion. In my opinion, having talked to him at length, having listened to every media hit he's done, having asked him a ton of questions, this to me is the clearest he's been about what his long-term vision and plan is for this roster. Play the clip, J-Mo. Well, you do, but you have to keep in mind the short-term picture also. Like, <laughs> people, people buy into things and they understand what sports teams are doing. And, you know, one of the things that people want to talk about is a rebuild, you know, you know, maybe it's just, let's just do a rebuild. Well, that sounds fine, but you get partway through that rebuild and most people get pretty antsy. Okay. Get impatient. And, you know, when are we going to win? When are we going to win? This is, this is no fun anymore. You know, two, three years into a rebuild, like you can look at some of the teams that have done that and where they sit now. Mm -hmm but everybody forgets about those tough years that you're going through to get to that point where you're a contending team. So it's like I said before, it's a tough juggling act. Um, You know, we're in the position we have to make uh, this decision, but ideally we, we keep enough good players that we continue to compete while we, while we gather some younger players and then bring it together in a few years. See, I love that clip because I think that is like what we're seeing here. For me, a rebuild is what you have to go through when you don't have an, a, a young core of, right. of future star level players or, or current star level players to build around. And the Canucks have already fitfully against their will <laughs> without leaning into it or any sense of discipline or a long-term plan gone through that process. And while those years sucked, they did ultimately result in this club having this group of players. Now, granted, one of them was acquired prior to the last regime, but nonetheless, you've got Bo Horvat, you've got Thatcher Demko, you've got Quinn Hughes, you've got Elias Pettersson, all under the age of 25, right? If you want to throw Garland and Besser onto that group, you can, but I think based on what we're hearing, the chatter in the rumor mill, I think keeping those two off to the side for now makes sense. That group of five, right? When you apply the are they part of the next great Canucks team test, a test which we should trademark at some point, by the way, because <laughs> I bring it up now every show. I think you can look at those five guys and answer yes, credibly. Um, your mileage may vary on Bo Horvat, but I think you can realistically answer yes on all of them, particularly because it's really hard, hard to find really good top six centermen who produce 60 points a year like clockwork the way Bo Horvat does. So. A rebuild would mean you have to go out and be bad because the only way to get players like that is at the top of the draft, right? I mean, just look at those players, and the only one not selected in the top 10, or yeah, in the top 10, is Thatcher Demko, who was selected early in the second round, right? And is a goalie, so it's a little different. Well, and it's also, if you're trying to replace that goalie through the draft, that's a lot longer development yes, process seven than years, it is getting a center right. defenseman. It takes a while this for is, them to ascend. This is like Thatcher that. Demko's first year as a starting goaltender for this team, like a 1A starter, and he was drafted in 2013. 2014. 2014, yeah. right. So, so that's an eight-year process just to get Thatcher Demko to his first year being Thatcher Demko, right? So, yeah, 
A hundred percent. A rebuild means you're looking to find those guys. This organization's not looking to find those guys. And I think that's a crucial distinction here. So if you're trying to do a relatively fast build, right, around these types of players, um, what does that look like, right? I think that's a really important question. And, and Rutherford described it as keeping enough good players around, you know, enough good players around, but also finding young players to come up underneath. He's also talked about shoring up the depth of the organization, upping their game on the player development side, uh, recruiting college and European free agents, building those four lines that can score, right? Shedding cap space and, and having flexibility. Now, where, where I am a little bit concerned is that for me, and we talked about this yesterday on the on the Canucks Hour, Jamie, was my five-point plan, which is also, you can also go read it now at The Athletic, um, a piece I've posted called What a Perfect Trade Deadline Looks Like for the Vancouver Canucks. And, and my one concern is I still think your quickest route to improve really fast is draft picks. I still think that currents, that that's the most useful currency to have, not because I want to see this team make 12 picks a year for three years and then wait five years for them to, to for some of them to filter through the organization and help you win. Uh, but because I think the best way to improve this team is to position yourself to make the Devon Traves, Taves trade or to make the Sam Bennett trade or to make the JT Miller trade again. Right. Um, but but for the next JT Miller, who's 25 and just about to do what JT Miller did here the last three years. That's where I think this team needs to be shopping with cap space added. And, and of course, you have to carve out cap space for that plan to work, uh, which is no mean feat, by the way, particularly in a flat cap era. But aside from that, I think that Rutherford's plan was was enunciated with, with true clarity, right? Like that is what this team's going to try and do. And on the surface, my concern about it is that it actually kind of sounds a little bit like the Jim Benning plan in the early years, right? The uh, accelerated the rebuild, and, the age yeah. gap, yep. and filling that in. And I don't really want to see a sequel to that. I want to see something that's a little bit more creative, a little bit more dynamic. I think Rutherford's bona fides still give us confidence, but there are certainly some shades uh, of a vision that was enunciated there, and, and we'll have to see if it matches his actions before we before we truly judge it, but that, that certainly raised the hair on my back a little bit. I think the big difference, and I, it's a fair point to to kind of point to the the similarities in rhetoric between Jim Rutherford and some of the some of the things we heard from Jim Benning early in his tenure. The two big differences for me: one, the presence of those guys you named, right? The presence of Horvat, Patterson, Demko, Hughes at this point in their careers, doing what we know they're capable of doing on the ice. That's a big difference that just wasn't present in in terms of young talent with upside when Jim Benning took over like that. The other thing that I do think is different, he, we didn't hear it in that clip, but elsewhere in his interview with Halford and Bruff, Jim Rutherford said quite openly, hey, sometimes you need to take a step back in order to take a big step forward a few years down the road, right? And the other thing he said was, the one thing we can't do is stay in this position we're in right now, where we're a bubble playoff team, and that's just who we are. And I think that recognition that the status quo isn't acceptable and that, look, sometimes you're going to have to take a step back in order to build the foundation that ultimately lets you become a contender. I don't think we ever heard anything like that from Jim Benning. And certainly, he didn't act on that in, in the way he was building out his team. So that, to me, is the major difference. One, the presence of the stars. Two, the recognition that 
you know what? Even if we're not going to call it a full rebuild, we're not going to do a full-on teardown. Yeah, sometimes you do have to take a step back before you can really move into that contender tier, become the durable type of contender that Jim Rutherford says he wants to build here in Vancouver. Now, of course, when you start talking about taking a step back, that leads to the question of, well, which players could be on the way out? Trade speculation has been rampant. There is more of it coming out today from Frank Zaravelli, among others. We will talk about that on the other side. I do want to give a quick Jack Rathbone update because we have some people asking uh, in the text message inbox 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line if you didn't see it Rathbone was playing with the Abbotsford Canucks in Bakersfield last night took a really scary hit was down on the ice for a long time uh, before eventually being carried off in a stretcher but the update from the Abbotsford Canucks today is very good news they say Jack was alert and responsive before being taken to a local hospital following a hit that occurred during last night's game at Bakersfield. Jack was discharged from the hospital last night, and after being thoroughly assessed by physicians, he's expected to travel with the team today to Colorado. So very good news on the Jack Rathbone front. If there are any more updates for you on that, we will bring them to you as soon as they happen. Just a quick reminder as well, don't forget, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your your podcasts, uh, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more Canucks talk on the other side. It is the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Strands, who of course also covers the team for the Athletic. Final segment of the show, it is a Canucks game day. Game time, 7.30 against the San Jose Sharks. Of course, you can hear all the action right here on Sportsnet 650. Sat and reach with your pregame show. Uh, I believe it's myself and Bick Nazar doing intermissions and then Sat and Bick on the postgame. Batch and Hershey, of course, have the call. So all day game day coverage right here on Sportsnet 650. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, we were reacting to everything that Jim Rutherford, or parts of what Jim Rutherford at least had to say with Halford and Bruff in the morning in the first segment. And as you might have noticed, as you might have picked up up on, uh, trade speculation has become a major part of the hockey discourse in Vancouver, I the, think it's the fair The trade to say. deadline hellmouth lives yeah, at Rogers Arena. Right. We solved the mystery today. Congratulations <laughs> to the three of us, uh, Jamie, me, and our producer, Jamo. We've solved uh, wh- where all the trade rumors are coming from. It's it's a great question. People always ask, where do these rumors, how do these rumors get started? And yeah, there we go. It's the hellmouth. The, the, the hellmouth the at Rogers Arena. The extra-dimensional portal underneath <laughs> Rogers Arena from whence they all rise as, as trade deadline season ticks nearer and nearer. Yeah, uh, and and... You know, uh, we the 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 trade discussion around various Canucks players is fascinating, particularly because and and you know we we've gotten into this this week and we'll keep getting into it for weeks to come, four oh, and yeah. a half weeks, Jamie. Four oh yeah, and a half baby. Weeks. But you know the problem with a lot of Vancouver's assets is that they're not valuable. <laughs> I, unfortunately, well, that, like, okay, that's the. That's the number one. When 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 Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin took over, and we started to hear these names in trade discussions, right? Yeah. It's Miller, Horvat, that's fallen off. Besser, Garland, 
And every time a new one comes up, we get the same text, which is, why would they trade that guy? He's really good, right? Tyler Mott. Totally. Like, well, because you go down the list and there's only so many players that are going to have major well, suitors around the NHL. And, and Tyler Mott is one of the least complicated trade assets that the Canucks have because he's locked up long term. He plays a style of game that everyone would like. I don't know if you read my colleague Mike Russo in The Athletic noted that JT Miller might be too big a pill for the Wild to swallow because of his cap hit next season when the buyout uh, fees hit the Wild right. from Parise and Suter. But that a player like Tyler Mott or Cedric Paquette or Ryan Carpenter or Blake Como, a gritty winger, might interest the Wild for their depth run. And I'm, I'm reading this sentence from the ever-reliable, like the eminent Mike Russo. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, one thing about Carpenter, Como, Mott, and Paquette is that Mott is by far the best of those yeah. players. Like, not close. And so, you know, if for teams looking for, like, grit, bottom six reinforcements and ahead of the playoffs and every team is always looking for those guys the Canucks are probably holding the trump card in the event that they can't extend Tyler Mott who by the way I think they think really highly of obviously he's really good so that's an interesting situation to monitor he's the most uncomplicated asset though that the Canucks have to uh, play with because once you get to JT Miller you get to a player who's you know, an absolute star in this league, a star-level player, right? A degrees better than Tyler Toffoli and, and rated as such within the industry. And while he is 28, the fact is is that his next deal is likely to still be decent value, right? So long as it's like $7.58 million, he's still likely to be worth that for the first half of a long-term deal. So it's it's not an easy decision from a Canucks perspective to move on from that. And I think we're seeing the seams of that debate sort of play out in part in public. Uh, Connor Garland, your mileage varies enormously. Like Connor Garland's one of the most polarizing players that I've ever talked to pro scouts about. Right. There are pl people that love him and see what I see. Like I love Connor Garland. I see a, a gritty guy who can manufacture his own offense, help drive a line. Um, five on five stud plays with edge seems uncomplicated in the way that he plays with edge, right? He just sort of goes out there and competes and doesn't care and tries hard. And I love that. Um, but there are team, there are people that see the lack of, you know, straight line speed and the lack of size and, you know, wonder if he's a, a top six player on a really good team. Uh, he's, he's as polarizing as it gets. Brock Besser has the contract status. And and let's get into that a little bit yep. more after we talk to, uh, or after we talk to, after we hear from Frank Saravalli on the morning show. Yeah, Frank Saravalli, uh, of course, regular NHL insider contributor here on Sportsnet 650. Had a bit of an update on where things stand with Canucks trade talks and specifically Brock Besser and JT Miller. Here's what he had to say. I can. How about this? Uh, Brock Besser is going to be number six on the board. A uh, well-fitting number six, by the way, matching yes. the uniform um, number. Is that the highest Canuck? Uh, it is the highest. He is the highest Canuck. Um, and the reason for that is I believe conversation has really picked up in the last number of days going back to last week that it's it's two parts the reason why Besser is, is, num is the highest Canuck on the list. One is because there has been legitimate interest, and I believe the Canucks have been exploring what those possibilities may look like. And two, some of the teams that have been really interested in JT Miller, my intel suggests that they are now starting to look at some of the other 
options on their list, their plan B's, plan C's, because they've gotten a sense from Vancouver that the Canucks really just don't know what they're doing on the Miller front, and there's no real commitment to move him. So it's possible. J.T. Miller's still on the list. Um, He's just further down. And I think at least for the moment, and maybe this just goes in cycles, this is real-time intel, that there seems to be a real chance that Vancouver moves on from Brock Besser at a certain point. And I think a lot of it kind of, you know, you read between the lines of what Jim Rutherford has been saying, you know, cap flexibility is key. We need to create some cap space moving forward. And I think when you watch the two players and what they bring, you watch the total package that JT Miller brings JT Miller next season at five and a quarter million dollars is a lot more valuable to the Vancouver Canucks than Brock Besser at seven five yep. with a qualifying offer. I think almost every fan universally in the market would agree with that assessment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're looking at trading one or the other, I, I think at the moment that's where things are trending in terms of Brock Besser. That's Frank Saravelli earlier this morning on Halford and Bruff in the morning. Again, you can find the whole hit on the podcast talking about interest around the league in Brock Besser. Just want to jump in. Errors and omissions. I said Mott was locked up long-term when I meant Garland. Uh, Just uh, want to correct the record uh, for the record. And for anyone out there who texted in uh, calling me on my my error. Uh, The problem with keeping a guy, right? The problem with keeping a guy who is more valuable and trading the guy who is less valuable is that you get less you back. Get less of a return. You get, you get less back. And so, you know, Besser's overall value is so complicated because of the qualifying offer situation. And and Friedman, Elliot Friedman on the Merrick show then went into it and discussed that, discussed the the subplot being Besser's next contract. But here's the other part of that, right? If you're Besser there is very little incentive to have contract talks early with any team. Like, unless it's going home, honestly, right? Like, unless you wanted to be close to your family and Besser, as we know, has some unique family considerations. Like, unless it's something like that, right? There's no value to agreeing to a, you know, six-year times $6 million deal now because the fact is, is that a team has to either offer you one year at $7.5 million to qualify you and retain your rights, or they have to make you a UFA, in which case you're the top UFA on the market the day they do it. Like, there's no value for Besser to do that deal relatively quickly. So, you know, I, I struggle to understand the logic of selling low on a guy... And, and keeping the guy whose values at a high point versus doing the opposite. Like, to me, you always want to m- maintain the guy who doesn't have a ton of value or has more on-ice value than they have trade value and sell the guy who has more trade value than they have on-ice value. Like, that, that to me is a straightforward consideration. Uh, Sarah Volley's reporting, obviously, suggesting that the Canucks are wrestling with that idea. Uh, again, proof's going to be in the pudding in what they do, but that's another... A sort of moment, something that I heard on the radio today or something that was out in the ether of the hockey world that certainly made me a little bit nervous about whether or not this club's going to do what's necessary or, or do the right things to get their, well, themselves back on the track. The Besser question is fascinating because I, you know, I, I think I land in a pretty similar spot to you where the upside that Brock Besser has 
is worth more to the Canucks than whatever they can get for him on the trade market when teams are going to be spooked by the qualifying offer and the contract situation with Brock Besser. And to your point about, you know, it doesn't really make sense for Brock to get a deal done now. If you're trying to get him to six by six, from Brock Besser's perspective, the perspective of his, of his camp, well, that deal is going to be there in the summer too, right? You don't need to jump on that right now, no matter which team you're bargaining with, in order to lock up that kind of long-term deal because those offers aren't going anywhere, right? So to your point, there's not a lot of incentive from Besser's perspective to act quickly and try to get a deal done. Now, the question becomes, okay, if they are, and, and again, look, as, as Frank Cervelli even said in that clip, you know, the Canucks are still wrestling with these issues, right? They're still trying, they haven't said, we're not going to move Miller. They're trying to decide what they're going to do with JT Miller. They're exploring the possibilities with Brock Besser. There's there's no decisions that have been made here, but it, it is an interesting thought experiment. Given the complexities of trying to make a Brock Besser deal, what does winning a Brock Besser deal look like for the Vancouver Canucks if they do decide to go down that route and trade him? And the hope is that there's some team or two teams out there that just love the player so much that they say, you know what? We're willing to stomach the contract issues and we're willing to make you a really good offer. But again, realistically, the contract is going to be a factor in any trade negotiation. So the, the question then becomes, how do you how do you win a deal if you're the Vancouver Canucks by trading Brock Besser right now? It's not it's it's not it's a simple not task. Easy. No, it's not easy. I mean, you either find a team that's really high on him and is going to is not worried about the 7.5 and intends to do a long-term deal. You alternatively look for players in similar situations with similar qualifying offer situations where the team's nervous about it. Uh, I can think of a couple examples off the top of my head. One is Jesperi Kotkaniemi in Carolina. Uh, the other would be uh, Kasperi Kapanen um, in Pittsburgh, a, a player that Jim Rutherford drafted and then traded to reacquire. So uh, some history there. That that would be another route. And then the last route is you do it for cap space. You do it with the primary return being cap space. But I, I think if you do that, you certainly lose the trade on the day of, right? Like on the day of, the reaction will be hostile in this marketplace, especially because of what Besser has represented over the course of his tenure here. And because he's really, really good. Like it's worth remembering that Besser is a 24-year-old forward with 250-plus NHL games of experience who has, over the that the course of that 250 games, scored at a 65-point-per-82-game pace. Like that's a rare piece. He's well ahead at his age of where a player like JT Miller or even a Bo Horvat were when they were 24, right? Um, project that out. You know, I, I know that Besser takes some criticism for the speed aspect of his game, but I mean, you, you saw Tyler Toffoli crush it in Vancouver. You saw Tyler Toffoli crush it in Montreal. You saw him get traded for an absolute haul of assets. Tyler Toffoli is not as good a skater as Brock Besser. Period. Yeah. Period. Like, I don't know I don't know what people are watching if they don't realize that instinctively. So, um, you know, there's lots of ways to succeed in the NHL. Besser has succeeded in the NHL with his shot, with his creativity, with his playmaking, with a high-level hockey IQ, and with the strength to win a ton of battles. Besser's a really good player. Um, for me, if you were ranking the three Canucks wingers who've been in the most trade rumors, right, Garland, Miller, and Besser, as players to trade versus players to keep Besser would be at the top of my keep list uh, of the three, just based on his age, just based on how productive he's been this early in his career, and based on what I think his ceiling could be over the next 
four or five years as he continues to develop into a pro. Um, I also think his value is at a low ebb. He's shooting a, a percentage well lower than his career norm. His on-ice shooting percentage, like his line mates have a low shooting percentage when he's been on the ice. Like this is, this is probably the nadir of Besser's value, in my view, because of the contract situation, because of the counting stats that he's managed this year. To me, dealing Besser now, you know, would be a mistake. Frankly, a, a straight-up mistake, unless it was done as part of a wider, coordinated plan to shed, like, if you dealt all three guys, and it was just like, hey, we have to re- reload here, yeah. we have to reload entirely, and we need this $15 million plus in cap space to do it, then then I could say, okay, I see how that makes some sense. Short of that, I, I can't wrap my head around the logic. The It's a good point you bring up about the, the speed issue, because one thing that Jim Rutherford did say with Halford and Bruff earlier today was that, yeah, as we know, he wants to build a quicker, faster team. And again, you hear that and you immediately start to think of high-profile players that possibly don't fit that vision, and Brock Besser is one of the names that come up. Now, you you know you mentioned several of the different pathways they could explore if they wanted to trade Brock Besser, and one of them is, okay, he's in a tough RFA situation, so let's flip him to another team that also has a player in a difficult RFA situation. My issue with that strategy would be, well, one of the things the Canucks are going to try to do if they do try decide to move on from a high-profile player or two at the deadline here is free up cap space. And if you're immediately trading Brock Besser and getting back another RFA who needs a raise, you're eating up a ton of that cap space that you're opening up right off the bat. And that's before considering whether you're getting, you know, adequate value for Brock Besser back in terms of the talent of the other player. So right there, you're eating up a lot of cap space, which, you know, lessens my interest in doing a Besser deal. And then, as you said, the point about him being at kind of the low point of his value, a lot of this does come down to what kind of contract would Brock Besser be happy with, right? Because if you are able to get him signed to a reasonable deal, and then next year all of a sudden his shooting percentage rebounds, the on-ice shooting percentage, the performance of the team around him is maybe a little better, and his point totals look a lot healthier, and he's now signed to a reasonable deal, well, then his trade value is going to rebound significantly. So even if you do think, as the Canucks brass, hey, this guy's not a stylistic fit for us, we don't like his lack of speed. We want to go in a different direction. I'm not convinced that that means you have to trade him now because there's a very real chance that he rebuilds his value in the near term here, right? Like a year, two years from now. And then you could have a lot more palatable options if you did decide to move on from the player at that point. Well, yeah. And that's, it's all about timing. You have to be a mad scientist. You know what I mean? You have to be like waiting for the potions to bubble and the reactions to occur at the right time, right? Um, one thing, one thing, because I know Frank Saravalli brought up the New Jersey Devils, for example, right? Yeah. And and you know, like, would it make sense? I'm I'd be curious to know our listeners' takes on this. Would it make sense if you could bundle Besser with one of your inefficient contracts? Say it was Dickinson. Say it was Pullman. Say it was Tyler Myers on the high end, right? And get back one of their inefficient contracts that has less term on it than the deal that you're shedding. So really it would have to be Pullman or Myers to make sense. And if you bundled Besser and took back Thomas Tatar 
in addition to getting Pavel Zaka, who they've been linked to, and, you know, a draft pick and, say, Ty Smith, who, who's the prospect that the industry, anyway, believes that the Canucks like the best in that New Jersey Devil system. And, and, of course, the ties between the Devils and the Canucks run relatively deep. Tom Fitzgerald was an assistant general manager uh, under Jim Rutherford in Pittsburgh for, I think, one season before he left to join Shero's reconstituted management group in New Jersey. So... Would something like that make sense with the idea that, you know, you'd at least be replacing Besser with a top six quality guy, albeit one who's at a low ebb of their value in New Jersey? You know, could you play him with some of Vancouver's productive offensive pieces and chop him on at the deadline with half retained next season, maybe adding a second round pick to your haul? Um, you know, would that make sense in the in the minds of Canucks fans? My guess is the reaction to that type of idea in this market, considering how Besser is thought of. Um, would be hostile. Like, I don't think people would see that as something that moves this team forward, and yet I don't really see how you can come up with a Besser deal that I think gives the Canucks fair value uh, otherwise. So it's a it's a really complicated situation to navigate all around, uh, particularly because I just think Besser straight up is one of those players who has more value to you than he does in a trade. And, and I always think you're you're always going to be hard pressed to come out ahead making that type of deal. If they could do it as part of a larger package to free up more cap space, that that does change the conversation for me because part of the problem, and we talked a little bit about it earlier in the show with Jim Rutherford's comments about the defense, part of the, the bind the Canucks are in is even if you want to try to dump your money, you know, it takes assets to do that. And they are not an asset rich team beyond, you know, the handful of stock of, of, top star level players that they do have on the roster, many of which they don't necessarily want to move on from, right? This is not a team that can afford to, you know, part with a first or a second round pick or a prospect strictly in order to get salary cap uh, money off of their books. But if you do it as part of a Besser deal, right? So you're using some of his value to make it more palatable for a team uh, to take on a contract like Tyler Myers and you still get back some other tangible assets in the deal, all of a sudden that that that's that becomes something that accomplishes a lot of what we've heard from Jim Rutherford, right? Adding assets while also clearing salary cap uh, or, or gaining salary cap flexibility. So those deals are very complex. I don't necessarily see that as a deadline deal. I might I might see that more of a as a a draft or off season deal because of how complex it is. But I do think that's the kind of thing that would really change the conversation for me around a Besser trade. Just you know, Besser for. RFA X, who's going to make four and a half million next year that the other team isn't high on, that doesn't excite me very much. Well, Doing it as part of a bigger package, as a bigger package, then it's interesting. Yeah, or, or if you get the right type of prospect plus, right? Like if it was sure. Kakanyemi plus Jack Drury plus, right? Like, I mean, then you are getting into something that might be worth considering. But, you know, the problem with like listing Kapanen and Kakanyemi as examples, right? Or, or a New Jersey analog, although he's been more productive this season than Besser has, would be... Uh, Jesper Bratt, Jesper Bratt, right? He's got 43 points in 45 games, and he's uh, pending RFA with Arbrit, right? So he's going to be expensive. He's going to get a big race. He's going to get a big race. Uh, the problem with that is Besser is better than those players, right? You, you, you go one for one, you're losing that deal every time. And, you know, I, I think this market is lower on Besser than they should be, partly because of how this season has gone. Um, he's really, really good. He's really, really good. It's very hard to deal really good 24-year-old players and improve. And, and for me, the Besser talk is the one that I find the most mystifying by a fair bit. 
Um, I can understand the Garland and Miller logic. The Besser logic just does not compute for me. We will be back tomorrow on Canucks Hour. Remember, it is a game day. Canucks at San Jose, 730. All day game day coverage here on Sportsnet 650. The People Show is up next. Don't want to miss this one. Alex Rodriguez, yeah, A-Rod, will join the show with Bick and Randeep at 3 o'clock. You'll want to hear that interview for sure. We'll be back tomorrow. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.